0: Hello again, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast. Brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space. And hosted by me, John Baston-Pitt. We're in a race against time when it comes to decarbonising energy and saving the planet. In recent episodes on floating wind, we've heard that hydrogen could play an important role in the transition to a sustainable energy source, but only if we can move to producing it from water instead of natural gas. This move to green hydrogen requires a massive transformation of the global energy system. And to do that, we must solve technical unknowns and overcome supply chain barriers. To find out more about where we need to go and how to get there, We have two very knowledgeable people who are deeply involved in the development of green hydrogen.
1: My name is René Peters, I'm working for TNO, Institute of Applied uh, Physics in in the Netherlands, and I'm working on uh, applications of hydrogen in the energy system.
2: My name is Lex de Groot, I'm the managing director for Neptune Energy in the Netherlands. Neptune Energy is an EMP company uh, working uh, globally in, uh, in uh, in eight countries. In the Netherlands specifically, we're the largest offshore operator operating about 30 platforms and associated uh, pipeline systems that is used to transport uh, Dutch gas for Dutch households. And we are really proud that we can host the Poseidon pilot, creating uh, green hydrogen uh, from electricity and, uh, and water uh, on one of our platforms, on the q Alpha platform.
0: So let's begin with what does green hydrogen look like? How does it differ from the grey and the blue? What is the chain from energy generation to, to, to hydrogen production, to transmission, transportation, to systems and to users? Rene, let's start with you. Can you kick us off? Yes, thank you very
1: much for this uh, invitation. Yeah, what does hydrogen do and why is it such an interesting molecule for the future to be able to decarbonize our energy system? Well, first of all, uh, hydrogen is the simplest molecule we have. It's number one on our uh, total rating. Uh, hydrogen is being used intensively already by industry to, for example, break down long molecules into smaller ones, to desulphurize processes, to build ammonia like chemical products. So hydrogen is already intensively used, but it's currently produced from natural gas. So it's actually not a very clean molecule as it's produced now. And you already mentioned in the future, we need green molecules and green electrons to feed our energy system and to also build products based on, on low carbon feedstock and low carbon energy. And hydrogen could be a major player in this process. But then we have to make sure that we don't have any CO2 emission from the production of the hydrogen. And that's where the green hydrogen actually comes in. Yes, let's get into the different types of hydrogen. So now we, nowadays we split hydrogen basically in three options to produce it. It's, it's the grey hydrogen, as already said, from natural gas, but there's a lot of CO2 produced. About 10 kilograms of CO2 is produced from one kilogram of hydrogen produced from natural gas. If we manage to capture that CO2 and we store it in the subsurface, like in depleted gas fields offshore in the Netherlands, there's plenty of options. We have a low carbon energy uh, hydrogen produced and we call it blue, but it's not a zero uh, emission uh, hydrogen. It's not a green hydrogen. And to get to green hydrogen, we have an option to split water into uh, hydrogen and oxygen. And for that, we need a lot of electricity. And of course we need green electricity, which should come from renewable sources like solar or wind or hydropower. So any green electron, could be used to actually split the water into green hydrogen. And just to have a little bit of a feeling, you need about 50 kilowatt hours of power to produce one kilogram of green hydrogen. And if you are aware of the current prices of electricity, well, especially nowadays, that's still quite expensive. So it means that we have to go to lower cost
0: electricity production from renewable sources So to make green hydrogen work, we have to move to low carbon, low cost renewable generation.
1: Yeah, that's what we need, because hydrogen is really one of the best options to decarbonize the the difficult part in our energy system. So think about industry applications, uh, energy intensive processes like uh, steel, uh, cement, uh, glass production chemical refining that those processes are difficult to decarbonize with uh, electricity for example with electrification so there the only option is either capture the CO2 or use uh, green molecules like hydrogen to decarbonize the processes so we definitely need it in our future energy system in addition to the electrons that
0: come from uh, renewable sources what's happening right now that is moving us to a point where we can consider these options yeah, good good point. Because
1: hydrogen is, is nothing new for many industries. We're already using about one megaton of, of gray hydrogen into the Dutch industry, mostly in refining and, and chemical. So it's nothing new. The only thing is we have to move it to low carbon or or, or zero carbon. So green hydrogen. And there's a lot of projects under development to actually produce green hydrogen from offshore wind and offshore, uh, also floating solar or solar onshore, and to actually uh, build up uh, a capacity to produce green hydrogen from from renewable sources. So there is uh, initiatives and first pilots and first demos. Scale is still small, so we have to scale up. We have to bring the cost down. Uh, Of course, we have to um, align with the buildup of uh, the offshore wind parks and the solar parks uh, onshore or either maybe in the future also offshore. So it's all about scaling up. It's about cost reduction and and, and, and introducing these green molecules into the the energy system.
0: Lex, this is a great time to bring you in because you are actually doing this. Neptune Energy has a world leading project to produce green hydrogen from offshore wind. Could you tell us all about it?
2: Thank you for the uh, for the invitation for this uh, this podcast. what is Poseidon? Poseidon is really the first step into the future that uh, that Rene is uh, is painting I believe. It's really about how would it work to produce hydrogen offshore? from wind, from from, uh, uh, this electrolyzer, uh, splitting water in in hydrogen and and oxygen, and then transport the hydrogen via an existing, uh, in this case, via an existing uh, platform and pipeline to shore. And uh, what we will learn here, of course, this is a relatively small pilot, it's not intended to, or will never be a commercial. But it's to teach us the lessons, uh, you know, how, how does the system work, uh, especially in, a, in an environment offshore, which is always a bit more difficult than, than onshore. But, but I believe we see a future for large-scale offshore hydrogen production further out to sea, where electrification be, just becomes very expensive or, or difficult.
0: What does this look like, Lex?
2: So what is it? We we'll put an electrolyzer on an existing platform uh, called uh, the Q13A platform. Which is about 11 to 12 kilometers offshore from the uh, from the beach in uh, in Scheveningen in, in the Netherlands. That platform is already powered by uh, by electricity from the grid, so we can really ha- have a kind of a clean source because we will uh, use a wind power, wind electricity uh, to uh, to power the platform and therefore the electrolyzer. Uh, and it will run there for, uh, for probably about a year to to produce hydrogen and we'll see what the difficulties are. In terms of yeah, materials, in terms of uh, of course, of safety first of all, uh, but of course also keeping the process running. Eh? While using seawater, you you cannot just use seawater like that. You have to demineralize it before it goes into an electrolyzer.
0: In taking those first practical steps, were there any surprises?
2: We are still, let's say, in the early phase of that. The electrolyzer is not on the platform yet. And the process so far has been to put all the stakeholders together.
0: Of course, because Neptune Energy is an oil and gas producer, isn't it? But this requires new kinds of technology and working with a wide range of companies that you may not have worked with before. And it's
2: putting all those different stakeholders together. And of course, yeah, we're now going through the the technical steps and and, and, uh, doing the analysis. So uh, I I think that's, that's probably the best summary of where we are at this moment.
0: The technology fascinates me endlessly, but but I love it when we start talking about getting to know each other and and seeing new collaborations in industries and and sectors that haven't had this opportunity before. Rennie, what's your view on this? Yeah,
1: well, I think uh, the nice thing about hydrogen and especially green hydrogen uh, produced from offshore wind in this case uh, for the Poseidon project is that it brings together two completely different worlds, which in the past were quite separately and independent of one another. So you had the oil and gas business. Which, to be, to be honest, is getting into a mature stage on the North Sea because our fields are depleting. Uh, and, and there's this renewable energy sector, which is, 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 um, starting its business in the offshore environment, placing big uh, turbines ever bigger with, with the next project and then feeding electric power into the grid. But with with green hydrogen, these worlds are coming together because uh, the the oil and gas sector knows how to handle molecules, how to transport them, how to compress them, how to store them. And and, and in the gas business, we know quite well how to transport and and balance uh, the the systems uh, uh, cheaply and and competitively. While the electrics industry, uh, the the wind power industry, they know how to produce cheap uh, electrons from renewable energy uh, in a sustainable way. And, and producing hydrogen from offshore wind in an offshore environment really brings together the the experience and the knowledge and the expertise of these two worlds so that's what I like particularly about this development is is, is this is clearly uh, where we need and use the expertise of of both uh, sectors uh, and and we bring it together yeah
2: I think I, I, if I can jump in I, I think that that's really the nice aspect of the uh, aspect of this that where we have indeed, uh, a strong experience in both, and how can we build on each other's strengths and each other's knowledge, basically, yeah, in the end, to start delivering an uh, energy transition, uh, to, 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 to the, where green hydrogen will play an important role, just just like electrification, of course, but really bring these worlds together with their own experience, but, but, but they complement each other to a large extent, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's a real good experience, and, and, and that will definitely help
0: the future of green hydrogen, but also the, the future of the energy transition as such. It just isn't possible unless we take this sort of approach, is it? What what I mean by this is, these challenges are massive. Poseidon is a small project, but
1: it's really a stepping stone towards something which will become very big. And the reason is that the offshore wind deployment is moving even further offshore with every next project that is being developed. And far, far from shore means uh, 100 kilometers or more, which means that the transport of electricity via power cables will move from high voltage AC to to direct current uh, transport, which, which becomes prohibitively uh, ex- expensive. And then converting this energy uh, to hydrogen in an offshore environment uh, really uh, saves quite a lot of cost on transport, but it also provides a solution for the introduction of all this energy into the energy system, because the grid may not have the capacity anymore to to absorb all this intermittent power, but the gas grid is able to to absorb it and also provide storage and balancing. So it's really needed in the future energy uh, uh, system. And and in that way, we actually bring together, as we we earlier said, the the electric system and the gas uh, grid uh, system, which is becoming available for alternative use for hydrogen. That's the nice part why this is so important for the Netherlands, because we are closing down the gas field from from Groningen and also the small fields uh, on on the longer term, which provides uh, a spare capacity, let's say, for retrofitting the existing gas infrastructure, both onshore and offshore, for hydrogen service. So we also make use of existing invested capital in the form of pipelines and infrastructure, which could be reused for, for hydrogen in the
0: future. It strikes me that this just sounds ideal a seamless passing the baton kind of approach. Yes, yes.
1: And I think it's only once you start talking to one another from different sectors about the long-term challenges that you have and the value that you can bring to one another's challenge on the long-term that you you find these solutions. I mean, the solutions are only found when the wind sector and the oil and gas sector came together and start discussing on on their long-term challenges. And that's really needed in the future energy system because we, it's, it, we're, in, we're in the middle of a system change, right? The energy transition is a system change. And, and this is not a, a, a system change going from molecules to electrons, but really going to an integrated system where clean molecules and clean electrons are needed to decarbonize uh, our complete sector.
0: Lex, you're the managing director of your business. Where's the driver coming from? Where's the effort coming from to start talking to groups in different areas, in different sectors? Is it a government thing? Is it, is it driven by groups like yourself?
2: No, it, it's definitely, well, it's coming from, from several di- directions, of course, but, but it's definitely also an internal drive, right? I mean, we, we see uh, what's happening in, in the world. We have a, a responsibility there. We are in the North Sea, which I think is an ideal environment uh, because of what we've built in in the last decades but also because of the location of it and and uh, and, and the circumstances that you have there to think about reuse and uh, to think about how can we optimize and look at system integration and uh, institutions like tno uh, and, like, and people like renee of course play a large, large large role in that because they have the overview that they see the uh the potential that it has and they can connect us and and they have done in the past to the different sectors and in the past you were Let's say where, where we were putting platforms and drilling wells, uh, uh, we were kind of in competition with the wind sector because they wanted to build wind, windmills. And uh, yeah, and, and so it was more like okay, uh, we're not talking to each other but trying to protect our own uh, territory, in a way. And, and and now you see the power of uh, of system integration and uh, what it, what it can bring to the future to the to the energy transition. And uh, so, so we have to yeah come out of the silos. Um, where we used to be in uh, in, in the past, and and, and, and yeah, that's uh, that's driven internally, it's driven by, by the sectors, it's driven by government, and and of course, we're all with the perspective to get an, uh, a, a, to a zero carbon uh, energy supply for, for the Netherlands in this case.
0: What I'm hearing is that the barriers are coming down. We are seeing a new form of collaboration because the industry has a shared goal, a goal to support a clean energy transition, which must happen at an industry-wide level. Lex, let's talk about the practicalities of this for existing oil and gas companies. How simple is it to convert existing infrastructure? It sounds easy, but is it really?
2: Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a very good question. Yeah, we have to look at, in the end, it's molecules that we're dealing with, but of course it's a different type of Molecule that that affects the materials uh, that we have on the platform in a different way, and so uh, we are used to to dealing with uh, w- w- with gas and, and uh, in, in the system, but the effect on 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 the materials uh, is different for hydrogen. So that's something we really need to closely look at because obviously, whatever we do in this uh, has to happen in a safe way, and we don't want uh, pipelines, yeah, bursting, for instance, to uh, uh, when we are in this process. So so that's one of the very important elements in here. Right? The pressures uh, that we work with uh, is one thing. Uh, the materials that we work with is another thing. And getting also train our people to work with hydrogen, uh, that's another important part of this. So it, it, it is looking at the materials that you have. Uh, we, uh, there are many different types of alloys, of, of metal that, that you have on your platform. It has to go through every part of that, uh, typically. So you need to make sure that that it can be done safely. And you also need to look at, for instance, yeah your, your alarm systems how do do you react to uh, to to hydrogen instead of uh, instead of methane uh, for instance so so your entire system uh, has to be uh, checked for suitability for hydrogen and you also need to train your people uh, to work with it so it's 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 quite an effort but you also notice that especially on the people part uh, actually people are very interested in this and they are willing to learn about how to deal with it so it also uh, yeah it gives kind of energy to, uh, to the company to work on projects like this.
1: If I can add, if you look at, at the bigger scale uh, that we are in this transition, we're, we're trying to, to, to make a transition from a uh, pure oil and gas producing region and, 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 and wind uh, producing uh, green electrons into a system which is much more integrated. Eh? So, so it has still some gas production. It, it, will, trans- it has, will have cables with power transport, but also hydrogen production with hydrogen transport. And it may also have CO2 transport and storage in depleted gas fields. So, so it's actually a big puzzle, which cannot be solved by a single player alone. Not alone by Neptune or definitely not by TNO, uh, but not by individual uh, other operators as well. So this is something you have to do as a joint effort. And that's why why Neptune and TNO, but many other operators and and suppliers are working together in a a large collaboration program to look at how this transition in the North Sea actually can can be managed and can be planned. And and when does the infrastructure become available for alternative use? Uh, And is that on time And, and is it at the right place and has it the right capacity to be used for alternative use like hydrogen transport or maybe CO2 transport? or CO2 storage or, or hydrogen storage for, for balancing. So it's a big puzzle you
0: have to make together. It seems as if the North Sea is almost the perfect testing ground to solve this complex puzzle. It is, and, and, and I
1: think it's, it, there are several reasons. First of all, especially the Southern North Sea is a shallow uh, North Sea, so it's, it's below 50 meters, which so makes it easy to, to install equipment. Uh, it's all fixed bottom uh, stuff. You can easily access it. It's actually the backyard of many of the offshore industry players who are active in the North Sea with installing equipment, um, laying pipelines, cables, platforms, uh, oil and gas operators, uh, and also new wind uh, operators, of course. So it's in the backyard. That's always the best place to test new, new stuff. And I think um, there's a drive, as Lex said, from the industry to look at the the changes and the the future developments and future positioning. But there's also a strong drive by the industry, by the government, to go for this new energies and low carbon energies production from from offshore. So all the conditions, I think, are really favorable in, in our North Sea area. What
0: about the rest of the world? Decarbonization is a global problem. Who is leading the charge towards green energy? Yeah, I think definitely the North Sea is
1: leading here. And I dare to say that the Netherlands is leading, but also realizing that our neighboring countries are also very active in this. I mean, Germany is very front running in offshore wind deployment and is now looking at offshore hydrogen production from offshore wind as well. The UK is very active in developing initiatives, projects on hydrogen, but also on CCS and electrification. The Danish have already decided to build the first uh, energy island with with interconnections and hydrogen production. So around the North Sea, several countries are really leading in this and and, and projects and and, uh, programs are initiated. But we are now approached, and I think Lex, uh, you you approached uh, as well as Neptune, Uh, maybe even on a daily basis from several uh, regions around the world, where these solutions could actually be applied as well. Every day? Wow. Where are these approaches coming from? So think about uh, the Gulf of Mexico region, South China Sea, Asia. Uh, I mean, there's many regions where where oil and gas is in the depleting stage. Offshore wind is is being deployed uh, and there's there's significant potential for, for synergies. And system integration there. Alex, are you being approached
0: every day?
2: Well, not every day, but yes, uh, we are approached to also to present the presiding project. Eh? I think uh, not that long ago, we were uh, approached uh, by uh, our the Dutch Embassy in uh, in Chile in uh, South America to to present uh, the project and, and and of course the larger perspective on this. So, so definitely yes, Korea was also another country. So it's. Yeah, and and probably for TNO it's even more because you have even more connections here. But but definitely we are approached. What uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to add to what uh, Renee was saying is that uh, you uh, you mentioned Renee uh, the, the initiatives in the Netherlands, in in Germany, in Denmark, in UK. But my feeling is it's still uh, very much aimed at the local uh, country need. And and if you look at the North Sea, I mean it, it's kind of logical. To, to have one approach here, right? To, uh, of course, every country wants to uh, get, get its emissions down and therefore focus on what they can do themselves. But, uh, but, but, but yeah, the, the sea is, is basically one space and, and, and assistance there can be used even better, I believe, if, we, uh, if there is a cooperation between all the countries that René mentioned and, and probably more, but especially in this space, uh, Netherlands, Germany, uh, Denmark and, and, and also UK. Are you hopeful that this can happen? Yes, yes, I'm hopeful it can happen. Yeah, I think in this innovation phase, everybody's having their ideas, and I'm sure that also, uh, yeah, that there will be a moment when um, when we will look at how can these uh, IDs come together into yeah. one one exercise. Of course, I mean it has to start somewhere. That, that that's pretty clear. But from there on, I'm sure we can, on the longer term, cooperate and uh, and get the best solution out.
1: Well, you also see now basically the, the big uh, uh, industry players in the offshore environment stepping into this uh, topic of offshore hydrogen production, eh? like uh, the, the big, the, from the oil and gas side, like Neptune, but also Shell, of course, is really targeting offshore uh, hydrogen production now. But also on the wind side, like Erstat, RWE, the the main uh, wind park developers are are really considering offshore hydrogen production as one of the key uh,
0: successes for further deployment of large-scale offshore wind. Let's get more technical now and explore what these offshore wind and hydrogen platforms consist of.
2: What, what I think probably the most fundamental part of, uh, of this process is the electrolyzer itself, basically. Yeah. With, with, by means of uh, the process of electrolysis, you can split uh, a water atom in, in hydrogen and, and, uh, and oxygen. But what you need to feed this electrolyzer uh, is, uh, well, first of all, electricity from shore. So in this case, we have an electricity cable connected to the onshore grid in, in, the, in the city of The Hague, actually. But you also, so that that's one, uh, that's a driving force, I would say. And then water is the other one. But you cannot just use seawater. Uh, you need water that uh, is demineralized.
0: So before even starting the hydrogen production, the platforms need water treatment technology to demineralize the salt water. So
2: we need to install that part of it. We need to install a container with, a, with the electrolyzer on it. And then uh, we need to connect to that electrolyzer, of course, we need to capture that, that hydrogen and we need to capture the oxygen to be, in the case of the hydrogen, uh, transported through the system. So you need basically just uh, yeah, uh, pipes connected to the electrolyzer and, and feed it into the existing production stream in this case. And then, of course, the, the hydrogen needs to have a certain pressure to be transported to, to the pipeline. Now, certain electrolyzers have an exit pressure uh, that we can use to do it. And if not, we would need to compress it and, uh, and, and feed it into the system. And that's probably when you're looking at the yeah, larger scale systems uh, further out to sea. that that's likely that you have to do something like that.
1: What is interesting in in this pilot, uh, Poseidon, we will bring everything on one uh, platform and and there we combine indeed the the desalinization and the the electrolysis and and then feed it into the gas grid. When you start scaling up uh, from the one megawatt scale that we have now, but we have to go to, to maybe a thousand volt acceleration towards a gigawatt scale you start discussing on optimizing the system. So is it beneficial to have everything on a single platform? Probably that's not possible on that scale. Or is it attractive to actually split parts of the system in separate uh, systems? So, for example, there's industry looking at, can we put the electrolyzer into the turbine itself, the wind turbine? Because in that way, we can do the splitting of the uh, water into the hydrogen in the turbine. And then uh, you, you don't get a power cable from the turbine, but you get a, a, a hydrogen pipeline, which you can then bring to a centralized platform, which probably compresses the hydrogen and feeds it into the pipeline
0: export line to shore. So industry is already looking at the most effective way of carrying out this work, Including the idea that the, the turbines themselves can become the heart of the the hydrogen production. Now you mentioned earlier what a rapid development scale time frame we've been dealing with. Can you give us some concept of the time frame for for this pilot project and then scaling up from one megawatt to gigawatts?
2: Yeah, well, I think for for the pilot. We intend to produce hydrogen uh, basically uh, in 2023, maybe uh, maybe late 2022 with all the work uh, uh, that, that we still have to do. I would probably say, but I guess Renée is probably the better person to answer this. But when you look at gigawatts, you're looking at post 2030. But there will be steps before that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So here it is important, I think, to, to realize what is the driver uh, for this offshore hydrogen uh, production. And it's actually twofold. One is the, the offshore wind parks is moving further offshore, which makes transport by power cables uh, expensive. Well, if you go to hundred kilometers offshore, you're talking about the wind parks which will be developed around two thousand thirty, just maybe a few years ahead or a few years later, but around that time. But there's a, there's a second important reason to go to hydrogen. That's actually that all this electricity cannot be absorbed in the electric grid anymore, uh, because the capacity of the onshore grid is just not sufficient. to to follow the uh, the exponential growth of offshore wind. And that means that the energy can only be absorbed in the form of of hydrogen into the energy uh, system onshore. And that moment when when you have this capacity limitation is also around 2030. So 2030 is really critical here. And that's not just for the Netherlands, it's also for the UK and for Germany, that the absorption capacity of, of excessive offshore wind power is just limited for the grid. So, if you have to follow the scale of the offshore wind parks that are under development, so that's gigawatt scale eh, for the next for every new park being developed, you also need a gigawatt scale of electrolyzers at the same time that this conversion is is needed. Now if you if you go back from one gigawatt in 2030 down to the one gigawatt we have now, well there's at least one or two steps in between before you get to that scale. So, so we, in, in, in eight years' time. We have to do two step-ups of the scale from, let's say, one megawatt to, to 10, 20 megawatt, and then maybe two, to 300 megawatt before you can go to a, to a gigawatt scale. So, uh, well, usually uh, scaling up takes three, four years. So, well, it could fit, but we have to hurry, let's say. We have to, to really start
0: scaling up this process uh, soon. When we look out there to the future, What are those big obstacles that we see at the moment? What are the barriers that must be overcome? Yeah, I would say we have to realize
1: that although we are talking about gigawatt scale and and sizes and and volumes, the reality is that we are currently working on a one megawatt unit, and that will be the biggest one which is installed in the Netherlands uh, at that moment in time. So scaling up, uh, standardization, automation of the production of, of electrolyzers and then bringing the cost down to a level which makes it also economic to run it uh, and also run it in an offshore environment. That is really a big hurdle that we that we have to uh, to jump on. And we, we need at least, uh, well, as we say, five to 10 years to, to make that work. Yeah, I, I believe basically
2: that in, techni- in a technical way, we, we can do this, right? It's indeed putting it all together in terms of uh, yeah technology development, upscaling, in terms of supply chain. But also, uh, of course, the market. Huh? How will the, the hydrogen market uh, look like? Where will hydrogen be used for? What, what price will it have? Uh, how will the import uh, of hydrogen, green hydrogen, uh, work uh, in the future? So I, I think the development of the market is definitely next to the technology and upscaling. Development of the market is definitely something that will will drive this or or slow it down.
0: I'm hearing that there are still a lot of things that we don't know in terms of how the market is going to evolve. But there is reason to be optimistic with the technology development. What message would you give to listeners who want to get involved and support this transition?
1: Uh, Well, if you ask me, the lessons we have learned from this process that, that, that started three, four years ago and, and got to this phase was actually that we have to start talking to industry players and, and partners who are not our, our standard companies or, or people we, we talk to because they are in, in, in different sectors. Uh, but talking to those uh, groups uh, can give a completely new perspective and create new ideas and, and, and come up with new solutions which you would not have come up uh, talking to your uh, standard peers and, and your standard groups. So I would advise all the listeners who I expect are still also a lot in the traditional uh, sectors in, in Fugo to start talking to, to groups are completely out of their standard uh, group of uh, of, of uh, communication. Yeah, I completely agree with uh,
2: what René said. But, but it's really about, you know, keep your eye on the ball here. Right? What are we trying to achieve here, which is have an energy supply with a minimum and, and ultimately zero carbon footprint. And uh, and the way to that uh, is something where we should not uh, get uh, lost in kind of dogmatic uh, choices uh, that we have to make. Uh, I think uh, for a low carbon energy supply to to this part of the world, uh, it's important to have domestic gas production in this phase because we still use it. Domestic gas production is also useful because we had the infrastructure that could be reused, uh, which is an efficiency, of course, uh, reuse is, a, is actually an important uh, environmental benefit uh, at itself. Uh, so, so continuing gas production in this part of the world, as long as there's demand, makes a lot of sense for the environment, of course, also financially, and it keeps the infrastructure longer life for potential reuse. Of course, we will uh, have to remove probably about 80% of the platforms. And that, that's fully accepted and that's clear. But the part that can be reused, please keep it alive to be mm-hmm. available for reuse so that you don't have to install it again. And then, indeed, uh, via electrification uh, and, and uh, offshore green hydrogen production, uh, have that complete picture in mind when, when you make choices. Don't make, if anything, I would say, don't stick in a dogmatic choice of it all needs to be wind or it all needs to be uh, I don't know uh, uh, nuclear or, or, or whatever no let, let's try to solve the puzzle together uh, in a way that uh, Renee described and, uh, and, and make the best choices
0: there. As we come towards the end of our discussion let's look to the future. René I'll leave the last words to you what is your prediction where are we going? Well, in in my view, if we are in 2050 in a fully
1: decarbonized uh, energy uh, system, we will have two major sources of uh, renewable energy. That's that's clean electrons from solar and wind and hydro, and it's clean molecules. And hydrogen is definitely the clean molecule that is used for our our decarbonized uh, world. Uh, And that hydrogen is produced mainly from, from offshore wind. The whole of the North Sea will have 300 gigawatt of wind mostly converted to green hydrogen, and the rest will come from regions where we have very uh, cheap uh, solar, for example, or uh, uh, offshore wind producing green hydrogen, which is shipped all over the world, while, like we are now shipping gas, oil, and, and LNG. And in that way, we can serve the whole world with, uh, with clean uh, molecules and clean electrons to, to
0: go to a sustainable uh, energy system. What a vision it is quite clear that the road to decarbonisation and the generation of offshore hydrogen is going to be long and pretty challenging. But the most difficult journeys begin with the first steps and Lex and Rennie, you've taken those steps. Thank you for sharing your experience today with us. Palette Beyond has been brought to you by our talented production team at Rebe Media and Fugro. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, find us on all podcast apps and subscribe and share. You will find all episodes on our website, fugro.com and on our social media channels. Don't forget to join us next month. And as always, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference.